Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Michigan. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Kevin Bacon was not in Footloose. The Kevin Bacon we're going to be talking about today was a compassionate, fantastic, and sassy 25-year-old who had a passion and a talent for hair. On the Facebook page, Hair by Kevin Bacon, you can see him doing incredible work with highlights, balayage, and even what a lot of people would consider mermaid hair with bright blues, purples, and teals. Kevin himself, at six foot two and 300 pounds, had short purple hair. Because why not? Just after Thanksgiving in 2019, Kevin celebrated his birthday and was looking forward to Christmas. I'd like to point out for no reason whatsoever that this makes him a Sagittarius like myself, which means that I'm already a fan, but moving on. Kevin had tried his hand at dating in small town Michigan, Schwartz Creek to be exact, but it was tough. The town is a whopping four square miles with a population of 5,500 people, so he wound up turning to online dating. From what I've read, he tried a few different dating apps, but specifically Grindr. For those of you who aren't familiar with Grindr, it's a dating app that describes itself as being the world's largest social media networking app for gay, bi, trans, and queer people. In late December 2019, Kevin started talking to a man on Grindr, and by Christmas Eve, the two decided that they were going to meet up. It was the holiday season, everything was looking merry and bright, what could be better than a date on Christmas Eve? He made his plans, finished up at work where he did both his sister and his mom's hair, which looked phenomenal, might I add, and then headed home to get ready for his date. As he got ready, NBC25 reports that he texted his roommate Michelle, who doubled as his best friend, and said that he was meeting up with a man from Schwartz Creek and possibly some others. He said that he'd be out for a while. By 6.12, Michelle got a text from Kevin that said that his date was going to be fun. Eight minutes later, he texted her saying that he was going to be out late and that he wasn't sure when he'd be back. He jokingly told her that if his mom called her to tell her that he was sleeping. For all intents and purposes, Kevin's date seemed to be going well. No one knew much about it, but he was a grown man and no one had any reason to be concerned. That is, until the following morning. According to WNEM, Kevin was supposed to have Christmas brunch with his family the next morning at 9am, but he didn't show up. Kevin was close to his family and always had his phone with him. If he was going to be late, he certainly would have let them know, let alone if he wasn't going to show up at all. But when they tried calling Kevin, it went straight to voicemail. But hey, maybe he went to bed and forgot to plug his phone in. Or did plug his phone in and the socket was an asshole and spit the plug out, so they gave Michelle a call to see if Kevin was at home. It was still pretty early, so she opened the blinds to check the driveway, and Kevin's car wasn't there. According to MLive, she then went to check his room, you know, just in case he had taken an Uber or his data dropped him off, but Kevin wasn't in his room either. Something was off. Michelle picked up her phone and realized that the last text that she had sent Kevin just three minutes after he had told her that he'd be out late had never been delivered. It wasn't like his phone had died in the middle of the night. His phone had been unreachable since three minutes after his last text, which was at least 15 hours prior. Everyone was in a panic trying to get a hold of Kevin. 
They tried for hours, but at 5 p.m. and almost 24 hours after anyone had heard from him, his parents reported him missing. His information was shared on the news and across social media, and his friends and family went out looking for anything that might point to where he was. And because this town was incredibly small, it didn't take them long to find something. In the parking lot of a little rundown shopping center, Kevin's family found his car. Inside the car, they didn't find Kevin, but they found basically everything else. In a bag in the back seat, they found Kevin's wallet, credit cards, and cash. But more shocking than any of that, they found the clothes that Kevin was wearing when he left for his date, including his shoes. It was clear that wherever Kevin was, he hadn't been robbed. But what had happened? Not only would you need your wallet, credit cards, and cash to do damn near anything, you would certainly need your clothes and shoes. And when Kevin left, he didn't leave with a change of clothes, so none of this made any sense. To add to the mystery of it all, with everything they did find in Kevin's car, they didn't find his keys. So how the fuck did it get there and where the fuck did they go? Did he just walk off without all of his clothes, only taking his keys with him? Certainly someone would have called that in. Did someone pick him up and for some reason give him a change of clothes and then drive off in another vehicle? For reference, the high that day was 38 with a low of 22, so changing his clothes in a parking lot would have been miserable, and considering the fact that Kevin was over 6'2 and 300 pounds, changing inside of his car seemed unlikely. If anything, finding Kevin's car left everyone with more questions than they had before. With all the questions they had, Kevin's family was hoping that maybe his phone would give them some answers. They unlocked it and pulled up his Grinder account to try and see who he had gone out with the night before, hoping that maybe they'd be able to find Kevin with that guy. But according to his friends online, all of the messages from the night before had been deleted. Local police got the state involved immediately and with both departments combined, hit the ground running searching for Kevin. According to NBC25, they sent out helicopters, which unfortunately did not locate Kevin. Mid-Michigan News Now reports that even though they brought in canines, they too found nothing, which is interesting. If Kevin had walked away from his vehicle, you'd assume there would be a scent trail to follow, but there was nothing. It was looking more and more like Kevin had met someone in that parking lot who drove away with him. Where they went after that was a mystery. I haven't seen any official reporting on the security camera situation, but posts online indicate that there were either none or that they existed but didn't point towards the parking lot. But either way, there was no CCTV footage to help point to where Kevin might have gone or who he went with. Mid-Michigan News Now was the first news station to really follow Kevin's case, and a day or so after he went missing, reported that a source, unconfirmed by police, told them that law enforcement had tried recovering the deleted messages from Kevin's Grinder account, but that it was a dead end. The reporter said she was told that the app wasn't cooperating. By December 27th, there was still no sign of Kevin so his little community set out with the police to search the wooded area around the shopping center to see if maybe they could find something. 
Local police, state police, family, and friends all set out on foot and even flew drones. But again, they found nothing. But that didn't mean they were going to stop. Another search was planned for the following day, the 28th, and they were going to start at 11 a.m. They planned on using ATVs and horses to try and cover a 50-acre wooded area. But before they could, there was a news break. And it was a huge one. Not only had Kevin been found, but someone had been charged with his murder. All anyone knew was that Kevin's body had been found inside the home of a 50-year-old man in Bennington Township, which was about a half an hour away from where his car had been found. And while everyone was waiting for more information, celebrities started posting about Kevin's case. Jeffree Star tweeted, Rip Kevin, I'm devastated to hear of the passing of someone from Michigan who lived their life fearlessly and was taken too soon. Please help his family in this horrible time. He posted the link to a GoFundMe that looks like it was originally started as a reward fund, but turned into a fund to cover Kevin's final expenses. Jeffree Star went as far as to donate $20,000 to that GoFundMe. Footloose Kevin Bacon also posted online to his Instagram account saying, For obvious reasons, I'm thinking this morning about the friends and family of this young person, Kevin Bacon. His life was taken much too soon. His love was hairdressing. I bet he would have done a great job on this mess on my head. Rip KB. At this point, Kevin's case had reached more people than anyone could have ever imagined. And everyone was waiting to find out how they found him what had happened to him, and who had been charged with his murder. And it wouldn't take long. By Monday, December 30th, 2019, the man charged with the murder of Kevin Bacon was named as Mark David Latunsky, otherwise known as Olikus, the Greek word for wolf, on Facebook. At his arraignment, however, ABC 12 reports that he told the judge that his name was Edgar Thomas Hill, no one gave a single fuck, though, because the police knew exactly who he was, because this was far from the first time they dealt with him. In October of 2019, just two months before Kevin was killed, the Detroit Free Press reported that a man had called 911, saying that he thought he might have been drugged and that he woke up chained in a basement. ABC 12 was able to get a copy of the 911 call, and it's shocking to say the least. When the dispatcher answered the phone, this unnamed man said, I need a ride. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I've never had anything like this happen. I don't know if he drugged me. All I know is I ended up in the fucking basement, okay? Chained in the basement. This man, who was from New York, said that he had traveled to the area by bus for work and that he happened to meet Mark at the bus station. Now, that part seemed pretty weird since Mark had not only one but two vehicles, so there was no real need for him to be at a bus station, but let's continue. After meeting Mark, the man says that they talked at his car, went to the store, bought a soda, and the next thing he knew, he was waking up in Mark's basement with a leather strap around his ankles, and the leather strap was attached to a chain. The man says he grabbed a butcher knife, cut the leather, found his phone, and ran out of the house. And I want to stop for a second and put emphasis on the fact that whatever was happening in that basement with the leather strap and the chain, there was also a butcher knife hanging around. I don't even have a butcher knife in my house, let alone in my basement. 
After freeing himself from the chains, the guy booked it, taking the butcher knife with him just in case Mark came after him. Not being from the area, he actually wound up getting lost and wasn't sure whether he was running from the house anymore or running towards it, so he called 911. And this is all straight out of a horror movie. During his 911 call, you can hear the panic in his voice. And when police finally found him, he started crying and saying, I'm just really happy to see you. And as horrifying as all this was, Mark was never charged with anything. According to the police, ABC 12 says that when they got this man to a safe place for questioning, he told them that he wanted to go back to Mark's house and that he actually stayed there for another couple of days. While the New York man didn't press charges and allegedly spent another couple of days with Mark, he eventually filed a lawsuit against him, saying that he'd actually met Mark's husband online and that he hadn't traveled to the area for work. He had traveled there to visit the both of them. But when he got there, the only person there was Mark. In the lawsuit, the man claimed neglect and gross negligent, battery and false imprisonment. A month later, in November of 2019, another man reportedly escaped from Mark's basement, this time running to a neighbor's house. At around 4 p.m. on a weekday, a neighbor of Mark's said that a man came pounding on his door yelling, Help me, help me, he's after me. WLNS reports that the man had purple hair, just like Kevin, and was wearing only a leather kilt and holding a rag up to his face to stop it from bleeding. As the man was holding on to the neighbor's arm for dear life, he was also on the phone with 911. Just like before, ABC 12 was able to get a copy of the call. When the dispatcher answered, November man said that he was trying to get away from this creepy guy who had tied him up in the basement. Just like New York guy, November guy had no idea where he was. He, too, was not from the area. Panicked and out of breath, November man told the dispatcher, he's after me. He was told to get to a safe place to go to someone's house, which is how he wound up at the house of one of Mark's neighbors. As police arrived on scene, so did Mark, who insisted that everything was fine. Just like in the New York man's incident, absolutely no charges were pressed against Mark. In a newspaper article that I couldn't find the source for, but I think is the Argus Press, it was reported that the incident wasn't all it was made out to be. That yes, he had escaped from being chained up in a basement, but that it was because of a consensual sexual encounter. Some of the people quoted in this article said things like, he wasn't trying to get away from the other guy, and he wasn't completely naked, he was wearing a $300 leather cape. The cape referenced in the article was actually that leather kilt. Let's be clear here that consent can be revoked at any time, including but not limited to when you're being chained up in a basement. And it doesn't matter if you're wearing a $300 kilt or a single $7,000 diamond earring. What you're wearing does not increase nor decrease your right to be terrified and run. In the end, Mark claimed that he just wanted his kilt back. This entire thing had mad Jeffrey Dahmer vibes, minus the cannibalism.
The November incident was just one day shy of exactly one month prior to the day that Kevin met up with Mark. Knowing this dude went by the term Olikus on Facebook, which like we said earlier means wolf in Greek, I felt the rabbit hole need to look up the moon phases on both days, and they were both waning crescents. Whether or not that means anything is to be seen. Because we're on the topic of Facebook, let's run down what was found on Mark's. Not only did he go by wolf, he incessantly used the wolf emoji in his posts. Much of his posts involved an intense amount of nudity. Naked in bed with his husband holding what looks like a whip. Naked in his basement, which looks like it was being remodeled. Naked in the kitchen, naked in the bathroom, and usually covering his junkety bits with a bullseye sticker or an I-69 sticker. There are also photos where he and his husband were wearing leather kilts, vests, collars, and chains. All of this from a guy who was a fucking chemist. According to ABC 12, Mark's husband, who had actually left him back in early October, said that Mark had lost his real chemist job earlier in the year, and Mark was now listed on LinkedIn as a self-employed chemist, which sounded breaking bad as fuck. From the outside looking in, I'm not shocked that Mark's husband had left him because it looked like he was doing back alley case studies on him and posting the results to Facebook. In Mark's last post, he wrote, Those who really know me call me a straight arrow. Oh, do they now? I am a chemist and an experimentalist. Here is a case study that every man on the planet should care about. 1st of January, I bought my husband a bottle of Nugenics, thinking it would boost his self-confidence and make him happier. Nugenics is that testosterone booster you see on TV commercials, so real chemist shit going on here. By March, I realized that Nugenics was causing a rapid decline in the dynamics of our relationship. I noticed the ingredient list included boron. That is known to cause sterility in men when its concentration gets too high. To be frank, it was making him sexually undesirable. Cool. Dude just posted on Facebook that the TV testosterone pills he got for his husband were making his husband undesirable to him. I got him to stop taking the shit and made a conscious effort to bring us back together. But by June, he had obtained a new set of GNC-recommended products that took us right back to the same trend line where he left off. TV pills, check. GNC pills, check. Self-employed chemists, definitely checked. He has eight-pack abs and is noticeably less happy with his life than he was before. So, the prize goes to anyone who can tell me which of these GNC products are making my husband sex-starved. Okay, so let me get this straight. All of this was about sex and something about abs. I should note that this post detailing his Facebook over-the-counter case study included a chart that Mark had made of their sexual frequency, with arrows to show when it went up and down. For reference here, they had sex 220 times between October 1st of 2018 and October 1st of 2019. Mark went on to write that, the chemicals and drugs that these evil bastards are putting into our health food will exterminate people if they aren't careful. It is time to put humans on the endangered species list. A root cause analysis concludes that mass male sterilization by the foolish will cause our demise and 50 shades of gray on network television can't turn it around when the real biohazards are every man trying to attract a sexual partner while sterilizing themselves to do it. He ended it with his signature wolf emoji. So basically, he has concluded that testosterone boosters from the store and on TV 
or a plot to sterilize men, stop them from having sex, and not even Fifty Shades of Grey can save us all from certain extinction. Self-employed chemist out. While Mark was rambling on on Facebook about trying to find sexual partners, it didn't seem like he was having trouble doing it himself. Because not only was he on Grinder picking up men, he also had a male escort account on a website called rentmen.com. It showed his last login as December 27th, which was three days after he had met up with Kevin, who was found dead inside of his house. Let me repeat that. Kevin was dead inside of Mark's house when he last logged into his male escort account. At this point in everything, how Kevin died was still a mystery. No cause or manner of death, no autopsy report, law enforcement was not talking. But what they did know was that Mark's charges made it sound really bad. At his arraignment, he had pled not guilty to mutilation and open murder. Open murder essentially means that they know it's going to be a murder charge, they just haven't decided which degree it's going to be yet. With Kevin's funeral approaching, his family held a press conference which MLive streamed. The news they broke first was that the medical examiner believed that Kevin was killed either late Christmas Eve night or early Christmas morning. Kevin's father seemed pretty frustrated with the dating apps that Kevin was on, saying that they didn't give us any information during the initial investigation and that they were rather uncooperative, adding, there is no regulation of law on how they operate and how accountable they are to people's activities in their apps. Raise your hand if you want a list of dating apps that don't cooperate with law enforcement. The Lansing City Pulse reported on an FBI agent who said that one in 10 online dating profiles are fake. If we're going to be living in a world of online dating where people can literally lie about every aspect of their lives, I think it's reasonable to expect that apps are going to cooperate with police if any of us ever go missing. Kevin's dad said in the press conference that he'd like to see some kind of legislation that holds these apps more accountable. While still waiting for any information about Kevin's death, Mark's soon-to-be estranged husband decided that he was going to speak out. With everyone wondering if he had been involved in any of these horrifying incidents, he wanted to set the record straight. He told NBC25 that he and Mark had split after five years because he noticed a change in Mark and that he was afraid for his life. That Mark had started saying unusual and unreasonable things, like the neighbor was polluting their water and that he couldn't bathe in the house because it was toxic. He said that Mark was claiming that his biological family was not his and that his children were not his. Yes, this guy had a whole ass ex-wife and four children. But we'll get to that. Mark's soon-to-be ex told ABC12 that the last time he saw Mark was on Christmas Day. He had moved out a couple of months prior but didn't want Mark to have to spend the holidays alone, so he invited him over to come hang out with him and some of his friends. He said that Mark acted completely normal and that it was scary that he could act so calm when something so horrendous had just happened. The word horrendous was the first non-police descriptive word used to describe what had happened to Kevin. While Mark's ex-husband had said that Christmas was the last time he had seen him, it doesn't look like that was technically true. Because in an interview with WNEM, he said that Mark had come over to his house two days later on the 27th. Mark had come over so his ex-husband could return a rental car that was costing him a lot of money, and Mark told him that he could just use his car and Mark would just drive his own truck. 
He says that he took Mark back to his house that day. Now, like I mentioned a second ago, Mark was once married and fathered four entire children, and in 2013, was charged with custodial interference kidnapping of half of them. According to Heavy, he was supposed to return them to his ex-wife, but instead kept them for an additional 24 hours and took them to a hotel. This might seem like a meh situation to some, but to the law, it wasn't. He was formally charged and given a $100,000 bond. He spent the next two years trying to convince the court that he was incompetent to stand trial and succeeded. Now, incompetent doesn't mean insane. This wasn't an insanity defense, and he wasn't claiming that he didn't know right from wrong when he did what he did. He was just claiming that he wasn't capable of participating in his own defense at the time of the charges. And honestly, it doesn't sound like he was. According to M Live, his ex-wife had said that Mark had been diagnosed with major depression, paranoid schizophrenia, and had traits of a personality disorder. She said that he was known to stop taking his medication, and according to the Detroit Free Press, when Mark stopped taking his medication, his ex-wife said that he would claim that their son wasn't his, threatened to get rid of all of their children and animals, talk to himself, watch torture and horror films, and refuse to bathe. To add to all this, the year after Mark was charged with custodial interference kidnapping, M. Live reports that he went to the state police himself and told them that he was William Gregory Dean and that he had killed Mark Latunsky with the stroke of a pen. It sounded weird as fuck, but eventually police went to Mark Latunsky's house to do a welfare check and found a bunch of random ass notes scattered across the kitchen talking about a curse and breaking said curse. They eventually went to the house next door, which had been his father's but was now vacant, and found Mark lying on the floor in an upstairs bedroom playing dead. Police know what dead people look like, and this was not it. So after telling him to knock it off enough times, M. Live says that Mark sprang to life and told officers that he was a protected person and that he wanted to know the truth, adding that his children were being poisoned by a lead-filled bladder bag that he claimed that his brother-in-law had somehow attached to his house. A year after that, police found Mark walking down the street wearing nothing but his right sock. The Detroit Free Press reports that Mark had been admitted to mental health facilities four different times, and once he established that he was incompetent to stand trial on his custodial interference kidnapping charge, he was admitted again for treatment until his competency could be restored. But by the time it was, the charges against him had been dropped. On January 3rd, 2020, Kevin's funeral was held, and a member of WebSleuths whose friend said that she had gone to the funeral said that it was an open casket service, that Kevin's makeup was fabulous, just like he was. That left a lot of questions, though. If Mark had been charged with mutilation, but Kevin's funeral was open casket, what had happened to him? The answer would come just three days later. On January 6th, 2020, WILX broke the news on exactly what had happened to Kevin Bacon, warning its readers that the information was going to be graphic and disturbing. And they were right. On December 28th, police had gone to Mark's house to do a welfare check, 
saying that it was the last place Kevin was known to be. How they came to that conclusion, no one really knows, but it looks like it had something to do with messages that were finally recovered from that dating app. When Mark answered the door, police asked if they could look around, and Mark seemed to have no qualms about letting them in. They checked all around the main floors of the home and found no sign of Kevin, so they made their way to the basement, the basement that at least two men had escaped from in the previous three months. Everything seemed pretty normal until they noticed a door in the basement that led to a secret room. When police entered that secret room, ABC 12 reports that an officer yelled, Oh my God, oh my God. There in that room, they found six foot two, 300 pound, 25 year old Kevin Bacon, naked, bound by his ankles, and hanging upside down by a rope that had been tied to the rafters. His throat had been slit and his body had been drained of his blood. Kevin had been dead and hanging from the ceiling in Mark's basement for at least two days. Police immediately put Mark in handcuffs and read him as Miranda writes, but instead of staying quiet, Mark openly admitted to killing Kevin. According to the Argus Press, deputies said that Mark seemed to be proud of what he had done, telling officers that he planned to fertilize his fruit trees and make jerky with Kevin's remains. The Lansing State Journal reports that the USPS actually intercepted a package being sent to Mark after the murder, and it was none other than a meat dehydrator. And while all of that is fucking horrifying, that wasn't even the worst part. Mark told police that he had removed Kevin's testicles, cooked them, and ate them. Mark Latunsky was officially one step closer to being just like Jeffrey Dahmer. He was going to eat Kevin. The DA told the outlet, I've been doing this for over 30 years and I've never seen anything quite like it. It's absolutely the most horrific homicide case I've ever dealt with. Because of Mark's back alley case study about testosterone supplements, I wondered if maybe he had consumed Kevin's testicles as some kind of sadistic experiment. But according to ABC 12, Mark said he ate them because it was a new moon. So that whole wolf moon thing wasn't that far off. Two days after all of this came out, Mark was in court in order to go through a forensic evaluation to determine once again whether or not he was competent to stand trial. According to WNEM, he had been insisting to his attorney that he was Edgar Thomas Hill and was a notable person from the Thomas clan of Wales and that the name Mark Latunsky had been given to him shortly after birth in an effort to protect him. For what it's worth, I did a quick search of Thomas Clan of Wales, and there was never any mention of anyone named Edgar. By late February 2020, Mark was in fact found incompetent to stand trial and was once again admitted to a psychiatric facility in an effort to restore his competency. Eight months later, it was. In October of 2020, at Mark's preliminary hearing, it was revealed that Mark had told police that he had met Kevin in that shopping center parking lot. According to the Lansing State Journal, he said that Kevin undressed and then put on a blindfold, ankle restraints, wrist restraints, and earmuffs, and then got into the back of a van where he was covered with a blanket. I'm interested to know where this van came from, seeing as the only vehicles we know about Mark owning are a car and a truck. Once at Mark's house, he says the two of them had consensual sex and that they both started talking about how they could make Kevin's body disappear. Mark claims that Kevin had told him that he'd been suicidal in the past. 
Mark claims that they both had an agreement to end Kevin's life and to use his bone meal to plant tulips, use his intestines to grow chestnuts or peach pits, and to use his muscles to make jerky. He said that Kevin wanted to be killed with a sword, but Mark said he used a knife instead, stabbing him in the back of the neck just below his hairline. According to the Lansing State Pulse, when Mark realized that the stab wound hadn't killed Kevin, he slit his throat so that he wouldn't suffer. Mark Latunsky's defense is that Kevin's murder wasn't a murder at all, that it was assisted suicide. Two months after his preliminary hearing, Mark's defense tried yet again to have him evaluated for his competency, but it was denied and he is currently awaiting trial. Since Kevin's death, the home that he was killed in has been sold. There was some drama in the process, but now an entirely new family lives there. ABC 12 reports that his parents received an honorary degree for him from the University of Michigan Flint, where he had recently started working towards his degree in psychology just before he was killed. Kevin's father told WLIX that he wants people to remember his son for who he was, compassionate. Kevin was someone who effortlessly cared about other people, a man who made everyone feel seen and heard and loved, and not a single person had anything negative to say about him. As this case progresses and Mark Latunsky heads to trial, I will be sure to update you. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Kevin's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Side note, I had a really hard time saying personality today, so please don't judge me.